Well, I invite you again to have your Bibles open at 1 Corinthians 15. We don't truly know how precious or important something is until we no longer have it. Consider just some of the things that we're not able to do because of the quarantine that we wouldn't have necessarily thought anything about until now. Having a family get-together, especially on Easter. Watching a game in person or on TV. Visiting a friend. Going to the gym. Being able to go in a restaurant or to go in a store to have a cup of coffee in a coffee shop, especially with a friend, to get a haircut, and perhaps especially to gather for worship. We think more often about them and more of them when they're gone. And likewise, you don't know how great the solution is until you see the enormity of the problem. In the last half of In the first half of the last century, the most feared diagnosis one could hear was to have contracted polio. For decades, there would be every few years an epidemic of polio cases. In 1952, there were nearly 60,000 cases, leaving nearly half the victims either dead or paralyzed. In a first grade classroom in Syracuse, New York, eight children out of 24 were hospitalized for polio in the course of a few days. Three of them died, and others spent years learning to walk again. And as a result, people were desperate for a cure. The following year, Jonas Salk announced that he had tested a vaccine. Over the next several years, American children received Salk's new polio vaccine, and by the early 1960s, those recurring epidemics were 97% gone. Salk became an instant celebrity, and there was a collective wave of gratitude that the disease that had ravaged so many had been tamed. You see, people were overjoyed and appreciative of the solution because they had seen and experienced the problem. And today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in order for us to appreciate what the resurrection accomplished, We need a full understanding of the problem that it solved, namely the problem of death. But for reasons I'm going to explain in a bit, the problem of death does not have the same resonance for us that it did for those who first read what you see in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 15. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When people in the first century read that, And frankly, when people for any of the 18 centuries after it was written would read that, they immediately understood why death is called an enemy because they had seen and experienced its devastating consequences. The Bible uses the word death some 450 times. But if we don't understand what it is and therefore why it's such a central theme in Scripture, we will not have a full appreciation for the profound solution that is the resurrection. So be forewarned. This morning we're going to see what the Bible says about the unpleasant subject of death, but also doing that so that we can genuinely celebrate what the resurrection of Christ means for us. Let's bow and ask the Lord to help us. 
Father, we thank you for allowing us this opportunity to look into your word, to sing praise to you on this Easter Sunday. Now we ask you to help us to focus our attention on what you tell us in the resurrection chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, so that we better understand the last enemy and what our Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us in the resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, in that outline that hopefully you've been able to print or at least have on your screen, I say, first of all, this. The resurrection is necessary. The resurrection is necessary. Verse 53, verse 53 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Now, to be perishable means to be subject to decay. And so we speak of perishable and non-perishable foods, for instance. Now, apparently, Twinkies are not items that only taste good and are really bad for you, but they come close to being non-perishable. A science teacher at a school in Maine was teaching on food additives and food preservatives when one of his students asked, well, how long would a Twinkie last? The teacher said he didn't know, and the student was sent to a local store to buy one. When the student came back, the teacher ate one of the Twinkies, but he put the other on top of his chalkboard to see how long it would last. That was 43 years ago. That teacher has long since retired, but the Twinkie lives on in a glass case in the principal's office. That teacher was interviewed last year, and he said he's been surprised and a little alarmed at how well the Twinkies Twinkie has held up over the years. He said, it's still the same shape. I mean, what's in it that makes it keep its shape after all these years? It's a little frightening, he said. Now, to be fair to the Twinkie, it's not so thoroughly filled with chemicals that it hasn't decayed at all. It has turned from gold to gray, and the texture has become a bit more rough and pitted, but it's generally retained its size and shape. So Twinkies come close to imperishability but we don't. We are in the process of dying all the time. One preacher said, if you doubt that you are decaying, then have a look at yourself. Despite the fact that our cells reproduce themselves on a seven-year cycle, the new ones aren't looking as good as some of the old ones, as far as I can see. It's just not the same. There was an elasticity about the last group that just isn't there with this current group. I never had to hold my Bible at 40 different levels before in order to read it. The truth is, we all have a shelf life. And so the resurrection is necessary because, I say in the outline, the process of death must cease. The process of death must cease. Again, verse 53 says, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. Now, we don't fully grasp the processes that lead to death because in our day, we don't have to think about death and all the ways that people can die very often. Our ancestors, on the other hand, understood it better because it was always before them. I recently read a book called On Death, which chronicled the astonishing variety of ways that death snatched the living from the midst of their homes and families without a moment's notice in the 1800s. It says, women took fever and died from having babies. 
And babies died from their small size or the harshness of the air. Men died from rivers and horses, bulls, steam saws, mill gears, quarried rock or falling trees or rolling logs. Children lost their lives as hard things smashed them like trees and the ground when horses threw them or they fell. They drowned in water, they sickened, and earaches wormed into their brains or fever from measles burned them up or pneumonia eased them out overnight. Death was something that people used to see up close. And to just take one example, the prominent British minister and theologian John Owen outlived every one of his 11 children as well as his first wife. Since people died where they lived at home, Owen literally saw nearly every person he loved die before his eyes. The average family in the United States in colonial times lost one out of every three children before adulthood. And since the life expectancy of all people at that time was about 40 years, great numbers lost their parents when they were still children. Nearly everyone grew up seeing corpses and watching relatives die young and old. I recently saw an interview with a biographer who had written a book about President Calvin Coolidge. The book describes a tragedy that occurred in Coolidge's life while he was president. I found an article that recounted that tragedy this way. Early in the day on June 30th, 1924, President Calvin Coolidge gathered his family at the White House for a series of photographs. The president and his wife Grace stood in the center of one photograph with the Coolidge's oldest son, 18-year-old John, closest to Grace. Standing next to the president was his namesake, Calvin Jr., 16-year-old Calvin Jr. had a lively, effervescent personality similar to their mother's disposition. Many people didn't realize that President Coolidge also had a hidden mischievous streak, not a mean-spirited one, but a fun, dry sense of humor that Calvin Jr. clearly inherited and President Coolidge doted on the son. After a few more photographs, the teens were eager to change out of their suits, put on some less formal clothing. Both boys were enjoying their summer vacation from school, and on this final day of June, the sunny White House tennis courts looked very appealing for an afternoon match. While their father returned to his work inside the White House, the Coolidge brothers hit the courts on the south grounds of the executive mansion. John and Calvin Jr. battled through several games of tennis, and we can assume that they spared no effort to defeat each other. Teenage boys, especially brothers, separated in age by less than two years, know no other way. But Calvin Jr.'s foot started bothering him at some point. So they ended their contest and headed back inside the White House. Calvin Jr., whether it had been from haste and changing out of his formal clothing for the photographs or the neglect of a 16-year-old who was more focused on fun than safety, he had competed all afternoon in tennis shoes without wearing socks. The constant movement led to a blister on one of his toes, and while teenagers frequently develop blisters in their hectic athletic adventures, this one was different. The blister on the toe of the president's youngest son quickly became infected, and Calvin Jr. spiked a fever. The next few days were a blur for the president, his family, and an anxious, anxious nation. Calvin Jr.'s blister and infection had led to severe blood poisoning. Much like Abraham Lincoln when his favorite son was dying of typhoid fever in the midst of the Civil War. President Coolidge tried to fulfill his duties while he was worrying about Calvin Jr. 
As the 16-year-old's health continued to deteriorate, the president seemed to be in shock, zigzagging constantly through the White House from his office to Calvin Jr.'s bedside. July 4, 1924 was the nation's 148th birthday and President Coolidge's 52nd birthday, but nobody was celebrating. A day earlier, Calvin Jr. had been moved to Walter Reed Medical Center as some of the country's top doctors tried to save the life of the president's son. Noting that Independence Day was his birthday, President Coolidge wrote a short letter to his father in Vermont. He said, Calvin is very sick, so this is not a happy day for me. Still holding out hope, he added, of course he has all that medical science can give, but he may have a long sickness with ulcers. Then again, he may be better in a few days. On July 7, 1924, just a week after the happy, healthy first family posed for those photographs at the White House, Calvin Coolidge Jr. died. He was 16. Even though we don't see death come in the same ways or as often as those in years past, we are still subject to the decay that leads to it. And the Bible says that this must end. The process of death must cease. But it also teaches, as I say in your outline, that the product of death must cease. The product of death. Verse 53, again, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Perishable means, as we saw, to be subject to decay, and mortal means to be subject specifically to death. When we say we are mere mortals, we're talking about the fact that we all die. When we talk about the mortality rate, it means the rate of death at a given time. No one can avoid death. It's been said that all the wars and plagues have never raised the death toll. The death toll has always been one for each and every person. Yet we are far less prepared for it than our ancestors. We're somewhat surprised when we're reminded of what they endured, as I talked about earlier. Now, why is that so? Well, one of the reasons that we are unprepared for death and the processes that lead to it is because we're shielded from them like no other people in the history of the world, literally. The great blessing of modern medicine has hidden death from us. And Christianity has, ironically, played a role in our failure to fully consider the process of death because it was Christians who established the first hospitals. A book called What If Jesus Never Lived has a chapter in it on the role that Christianity played in the advance of hospitals and medicine. It says, in the pre-Christian Roman Empire, hospitals existed only for soldiers, gladiators, and slaves. Manual laborers and other poor individuals had no place of refuge. Men feared death but took little interest in the sick. They often drove them out of the house and left them to their fate. Hospitals as we know them began through the influence of Christianity. The love and example of Jesus Christ inspired a new attitude toward helping the ill. Even today, many of the hospitals reflect their Christian origin in names like Baptist Hospital, St. Luke's Presbyterian, Holy Cross Hospital, and the like, even if in some cases the Christian emphasis may be long gone. 
And this goes back a very long way in Christianity. In 325, the Council of Nicaea decreed that hospitals were to be established wherever the church was. Basel of Caesarea, just after that time, established the very first non-ambulatory hospital. It was a medical facility with beds. Prior to Basel, all hospitals were essentially ambulatory clinics. One author said about Basel's hospital, it had as many wards as there were diseases to treat, and it resembled a little township of its own. It included a leper colony, the rule of love, implying also the care and comfort of the sick embraced even lepers who previously had always been kept in isolation. A wealthy Christian woman, Fabiola, is credited with having built the first hospital in the Western world in Rome around 400 AD. The oldest hospital still functioning today is the Hotel Dieu, that's French for God, located in Paris, and it was established around A.D. 600. Even by current standards, this early French hospital could truly be called a medical center since it embraced many of the varied activities necessary to care for the sick. The oldest hospital in the New World still in existence today is the Jesus of Nazareth Hospital in Mexico City, established in the early 16th century. But still, until the 19th century, many hospitals were utilized by the poor, but not by everybody. People of means would be treated in their own homes. It wasn't until the, the advancements of, in bacteriology of Louis Pasteur, a Christian, of pasteurizing fame, and in antiseptic surgery by Joseph Lister, after which Listerine is named, also a Christian, it wasn't until then that hospitals became much safer and so were utilized by the general population. In the United States, the first hospitals were started largely by Christians. The first hospital, established in Philadelphia in 1751, was started with great input from the Quakers, who were at least influenced by Christian teaching. Florence Nightingale, the famous Florence Nightingale, was a Christian woman who pioneered training for nurses. The Red Cross is one of the greatest humanitarian organizations in the world and was started by an evangelical Christian. And on it goes in terms of Christian influence in the practice of medicine. In 1931, some North American missionaries started a Christian shortwave radio station in Quito, Ecuador. It ministered throughout Latin America and beyond. After a while, indigent people from neighboring countries came to the radio station seeking medical help. Now, why would they come to a radio station for medical help? They somehow assumed that these people who were ministering to their souls would also minister to their bodies. So in the 1950s, this station, HCJB, the voice of the Andes, added a hospital to its mission, the Hospital of the Andes, and today, it's one of the chief hospitals in the entire country. That On Death book that I mentioned earlier says, Medicine and science have relieved us of many causes of early death, and today the vast majority of people decline and die in hospitals and hospices away from the eyes of others. It is normal now to live to adulthood and not watch anyone die or even see a corpse except in the brief glance of an open coffin at a funeral. Our great-great-grandparents, or just our great-grandparents, or even only grandparents, depending on how old you are, 
did not enjoy the blessings that we've had all our lives. And they are indeed blessings of science and medicine and innovation that have protected us from having to deal with death in the ways that those who came before us had to. But the blessing can be a problem if it blinds us to the spectacular achievement that is the resurrection. If our protection from death as a regular part of our lives inures us from recognizing the astonishing significance of the resurrection, then we miss a much much greater blessing than science, medicine, and hospitals can ever provide for us. And so the resurrection was necessary because the process of death must cease and the product of death must cease. And I say in your outline, the resurrection was not only necessary, but fatal. The resurrection is fatal. I'll explain what I mean by that in a bit. And so, friends, we need to be able to read verse 54 as those in times past would have. Verse 54 says, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Now, to understand the totality of this victory, we need to know the extent of death as it's described in the Bible. You can think of death as it's described in the Bible as separation separation. The most obvious form of death is physical, and physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. Biblically, someone dies when their spirit leaves their body. And I've talked in this message so far about physical death, but physical death only exists because there's another prior and more serious form of separation, namely spiritual death. And that goes all the way back to the beginning of human history and to the beginning of your Bible and the book of Genesis. Many of you know the story that God had placed the first man and woman in a beautiful garden. He had given them the liberty to use and eat of everything in the garden. He gave them one command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent, Satan, embodying a serpent, came and tempted Eve. Eve said to the serpent in Genesis 3 that indeed God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden or you will die. Now we know that Adam and Eve did disobey God and they did eat from the tree, but interestingly, they didn't die physically that day. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And yet they lived for many years thereafter physically. They lived for many years thereafter, but in fact, they did die that very day spiritually. That is, they were now separated from God. And now all of their progeny, you and me, all of us come into the world in the same state that they were in, separated from God, spiritually dead. That's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were, quote, all dead in transgressions and sins before Christ made us alive spiritually. And so there is physical death and there is spiritual death. And then there is in the Bible eternal death. That is separation from God forever. And that is only for those who refuse to come 
to Jesus Christ. The resurrection deals a death blow to all of these forms of death. That's why I say the resurrection is fatal, because it kills death, so to speak. Now, understanding this, then, leads to the taunt of death in verse 55. In verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It's like Paul is now saying, because of the resurrection of Jesus, is that all you got, death? <laughs> Bring it on. Paul's talking a little theological smack when he says, where, death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, these, you'll notice, are in quotation marks because they are loose quotations from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 25 and Hosea chapter 13. The well-regarded commentator R.C.H. Lenski said of this absolute victory, Death is not merely destroyed so that it can do no further harm while all of the harm which it has wrought on God's children remains. The tornado is not merely checked so that no additional homes are wrecked while those that are wrecked still lie in ruin. Death and all its apparent victories are undone for God's children. What looks like a victory for death and like a defeat for us when our bodies die and decay shall be utterly reversed so that death dies in absolute defeat and our bodies live again in absolute victory. And so verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. One has pointed out that only where there is sin can death deal a fatal blow. But where sin has been removed, death can only interrupt the earthly life and usher in the heavenly. That is what Christ has done for those who trust in Him. Our sins are forgiven for His name's sake, 1 John chapter 2 tells us. Death is not yet gone, but its sting, sin, has been overpowered by Christ. Because Romans 6.14 says, sin shall no longer be your master. Christ defeated the law in removing its penalties and its power. The power of sin is the law that, though good in itself, is bad for us because we cannot keep it. And that failure constantly reveals our sin to us and it guilts us. But Jesus met the standards of God's law perfectly for us so that the power of sin is now broken for those who are His. And that's why verse 57 says, But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is necessary. The resurrection is fatal for death. And finally, the resurrection is certain. The resurrection is certain. I've said in the outline under point one that the process and product of death must cease. And that's because verse 53 says the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal must do so with immortality. And it's a must because of what verse 50 says. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the imperishable inherit the perishable. One preacher said, we call this the law of transformation. That is, we're not going to enter heaven as we are. In order to enter the kingdom of God, there must be a change, a transformation. 
When it says flesh and blood, it's referring to human nature, life here and now. The life that we live here and now cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's a different order of being, a different order of experience. Now please note, it's not saying that the body cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, the body can inherit the kingdom of God, providing that there's a transformation in the body that we're going to see in just a bit. So the body has not been ruled out, but there has to be a transformation of the body. We cannot enter the kingdom of God in this body unchanged, but we will be given a body which will be suitable for the inheritance of the kingdom of God and for the enjoyment of eternal life. Now, how will that happen? Verses 51 and 52 tell us that. Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, back in verse 23 of chapter 15, it tells us that this resurrection will occur when He comes. What's going to happen when Christ comes, both to those who have died and those who are alive at that time? There will be those who died and must be resurrected and those Christians who are alive and will be translated to be with the Lord, but all, without exception, will be changed. For those alive at the time the Lord returns, 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, tells us that those who belong to Christ will be raised at, at that time. Those that have fallen asleep in, in Him. Those who have died. The Bible uses that word sleep for Christians because the resurrection to life is something that is, is still ours. But those who do not belong to Christ will be left, and those who died outside of Christ will be resurrected to judgment at a later time. We'll see that in our study of the book of Revelation that we'll pick up again next week. Now, the reason it's called a mystery in verse 51 is because what's being said here in its particulars had not been revealed previously. The passage contains some old teaching, but also some new teaching that's now being made known. A mystery in the Bible is not a secret, but rather something previously unknown to us that's now being made known, namely, that we will all be changed, both living and dead, in Christ. And verse 52 tells us how that will happen. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. This will happen for God's people when the last trumpet for the church, not the last trumpet ever, because as we're looking at the book of Revelation, we see that there are seven trumpets during what's called the tribulation period after this occurs. But one scholar points out that the word, the word that's translated change is a word that's derived from an adjective that means another of the same kind. It means as you consider other verses like the verses in verses 36 through 41, verses 36 to 41 of this chapter, that we will have our same identity, but it'll be in a different form, one fitted for our new home. In other words, in our resurrection body, we are not giving up this identity for something else. When verses 53 and 54 say the perishable must put on imperishability and the mortal must put on immortality, it's in Greek literally this. This perishable and this mortal. That is, 
It's not that this body is going to be laid aside, but this corruptible body is to be changed. It's the same body, but also wonderfully different in that it will no longer be susceptible to decay and death, perishing and mortality. You remember that that was the case with Jesus in His resurrection body? He had the same body, we know, because God chose to keep the scars of the cross on him, something that what God wants forever before his people. And verse 52 says this will happen in a flash, in a moment. It's from a word that means to cut. In fact, we get our word atom from it, the smallest particle of an element that cannot be cut further, at least not without great difficulty. So it will happen just like that. In a flash and then in the twinkling of an eye. Not even the time it takes for the blinking of an eye. The twinkling is more like a wince or a twitch of the eye. Just like that, we're with the Lord. So friends, our spiritual resurrection now guarantees our physical resurrection in the future and our eternal life with the Lord. Instead of the spiritual death that we're born with, if we come to Christ, we have spiritual life now and physical life after our physical death and eternal life with God rather than eternal separation from Him. And all of that was accomplished because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that we celebrate today. And so I say in your take-home truth, Christ's resurrection guarantees our victory over sin. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we thank you again for allowing us to consider your word on this blessed day focused upon the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for the realism that is found in your word about what happens in a fallen world to those of us who are fallen, that we decay, that we ultimately die. We thank you for not only telling us the problem, but for granting us the blessed solution in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that he came and died so that we can live, that he was raised so that we will be raised, and that the guarantee of our physical res resurrection in the future is that we are spiritually raised now that we come to Him believing who He is and what He has done for us. And so, Father, I would pray and ask You to move upon the hearts of those who are listening, any who have never come to the Lord Jesus Christ and received from His hand freely what He has done on their behalf, recognizing that they have sinned and that their sin put Him on the cross my sin put him on the cross, that our sin is what causes the decay and the death and separates us from you. But Jesus has done all that's necessary in order to reconcile all of that. And so draw some to yourself on this Easter, we ask. And Lord, we ask you to cause those of us who know you and in who, in whom you have spiritually raised and help us to have a better appreciation for what was accomplished by the Lord Jesus in his resurrection from the dead. Father, we look forward to the day that we will be raised, that we will all be together forever with our Lord in eternity. 
come quickly. Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.